Good morning from central Pennsylvania. It's Memorial Day 2022. Memorial Day in the United States is a holiday uh, to commemorate the loss of life in war and to honor those that have sacrificed their lives, often very young men, uh, on behalf of their country in a, in a battle, in a war. And war is human folly. It's... Uh, it sometimes is necessary, but no one can call it a good thing. Nonetheless, we should honor those that have served and sacrificed their lives, for they gave the most precious thing they had, their own life, for the benefit of others. Now, it just depends whose side you're on. And I believe there's moral, there's a moral nature to war, that there is good versus evil, although... Both sides are not completely pure or completely evil. There sometimes is one that's more guilty than the other. I think that is the case in, in many wars. Some are more ambivalent. I think World War I, it was pretty unclear about who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. I just say that. I think a lot of historians agree. Uh, World War II was clear uh, that Germany was and the associated powers were evil, more evil than the Allies. As is tradition for me on uh, the Memorial Day weekend, Memorial, let me see if I can say that completely, it's not a hard word to say, Memorial Day weekend, as I head down to my brother's house, which is outside of Valley Forge Park, it's not that close, but it's like 10 minutes away from Valley Forge Park, and Valley Forge Park for me is something that I've had in my life since the nineteen early 1970s, because I grew up only about five minutes away from it on the other side of the park and we used to go down there as kids and spend all day down there hanging out ride our bikes down uh, play frisbee hang out at wayne's woods uh, we would toboggan down general anthony wayne hill uh snurf on other hills uh, snurfing is a form of snowboarding back in the uh, late 70s early 80s it was basically a water ski with a string on it that was the precursor to snowboarding believe it or not uh, so I get down to uh, Valley Forge Park every Memorial Day. Uh, I was I drove through it today on the way back, but yesterday actually is when I spent a little more time in the park. And I go to the Memorial Arch, which was uh, constructed sometime in the 1800s, late 1800s, and is a, a replica of the arch that they had built in Rome or was in Rome to um, celebrate the triumph of the Roman armies over uh, the Jewish rebellion in Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed in AD 70 uh, by the Roman Empire. And I, uh, when, the, uh, when the forces and the soldiers came back to Rome, uh, they, they went underneath this arch that uh, is the same design as the one that's in Valley Forge Park. So anyone who doesn't see the connection between ancient Rome and the empire uh, and the Republic and then the empire and the United States uh, is missing a huge lesson in history. Our founding fathers were enamored by Greek and Roman uh, history, uh, tried to learn the lessons from the mistakes the Romans made and the Greeks, and tried to build a more sturdy republic. God knows if we're going to make it. That's what I, I think. But anyway, so on, on the side of the, the Valley Forge Arch, which is a huge structure, I could actually see it from my neighbor's backyard with my telescope, but I could even kind of see the outline of the writing on the, on the arch on the outside. But in, inside the arch itself... There's a, uh, an oration, a part of an oration that's there, and it was done by Henry Armette Brown, 
and it was the oration at Valley Forge, and it was given on the 100th anniversary of the departure of the Continental Army in June from its winter encampment in Valley Forge. So it was the 100th anniversary of that date. Um, and this oration is 60 pages long, believe it or not. It's not just a short speech, but the part that's engraved on the side of the arches is, um, is a part of that oration. And I'm getting to Soren here, so just hold on a minute. I have a story to tell. Um, it was not unusual in those days for orders to speak for hours at a time. People were used to it. They could stand and listen. That was kind of the form of uh, education and entertainment. People didn't have television, of course. They didn't have... Uh, these phones, these blasted phones. And I thought Madison's uh, comments about how social media and the phones and technology and screens have really occupied uh, this coming generation, millennial and generation, the generations that follow, like they're enamored with their screens. It's almost idolatrous, but I can't judge them too harshly because I am pretty much the same way. You know, as all of us are. But, you know, the technology does provide the ability, for example, to listen to this podcast and do really worthwhile things. And I could pull up a portion of this uh, oration. So it wasn't unusual back in the day for uh, orders to give really, really long speeches. These days, we'd be like, can you do it as a soundbite? Can we move on? we got stuff to do. we gotta, we got to do some other stuff. Uh, and, it, you know, when Lincoln gave his talk at Gettysburg, it was about three minutes long, which was really unusual. He was the, uh, I think he was the second to last speaker and the key speaker was following Lincoln, who, who talked for hours. <laughs> and nobody remembers that guy's speech. Uh, but at the time, it was very normal to do that. Lincoln was just asked to provide a few comments, and uh, his comments have lasted because they ring true. And it's a peculiar form of genius to be able to be short and subtle but be profound. It's hard to do. Lincoln was a master of it. He gave some long speeches, of course, but Gettysburg is a master it's a master speech maker, and those words, every word hits like a, um, hits like a bell or a chord, the mystic chords of memory, as, as Lincoln refers to. Go back and read the Gettysburg Address. But here was what's inscribed inside the arch uh, by Henry Armit Brown at the oration at Valley Forge, 100th anniversary of the departure of the Continental Army from its winter encampment in Valley Forge. And here in this place of sacrifice, in this veil of humiliation, in the valley of the shadow of that death out of which the life of America rose, regenerate and free, let us believe with an abiding faith that to them union will be seen as, seem as dear and liberty as sweet, and the progress as glorious as they were to our fathers. And I would add mothers and sisters and brothers and grandparents. Everybody suffers in war. You know, it's not just the soldiers. The soldiers suffer more. But how about the uh, how about the uh, mother of that soldier who sits at, sits at her in her home and in the fields wondering if her son will ever return from battle? And how about the siblings? And how about the grandparents? And to you and to me and to the inst institutes institutions which uh, have made us happy, preserved by the virtue of our children, shall bless the remotest generation of the time to come. Um, like I said, the arch was constructed sometime in the late 1800s. I don't know how it coincided with this 100th anniversary of the departure of the Continental Army. But it's right after the Civil War. It's a little bit more than a decade after the Civil War. It ended uh, closer to uh, 1878, would have you know, been about 13 years or so. So the nation is still very, very torn by that conflict. And we still are today, believe me. If you go into the Deep South and you uh, you talk to people who 
have a lineage to Civil War veterans from the southern side. There's still a lot of bitterness there. Uh, my piece is deal with it because you all were in the wrong and you deserve what you got. They fought very courageous in a foolish cause. Uh, US, Ulysses S. Grant said something to that effect that never was a soldiery so brave on such a worthless cause in the, in the annals of humanity. So they demonstrated courage and tactical superiority and uh, wits on the battlefield and all those things. Uh, the North just ground them down. And plenty of people in the North did too, believe me. Uh, but the South, uh, the South put up a good fight. They really did. Pretty amazing considering the, uh, the relative strength and numbers and industry and resources and money. Um, it was a Davy and Goliath, although in this case Davy was wrong. Davy deserved to get beaten by Goliath, beaten hard and beaten down. Uh, but we have to remember this speech is given the context of, um, of the North's victory over the South. And Valley Forge isn't terribly far away from some southern states, Maryland, was a slave state, but it wasn't officially uh, in the Confederacy, but it had many Confederate sympathizers, of course. And one of those was the dude that shot Lincoln, Booth. He was from Maryland. So in one sense, it was very much a southern state and its sensibilities towards the Confederacy and the Union, but it didn't officially secede. Uh, obviously, uh, these, these words from uh, Henry... Armit Brown are very stirring. Uh, they're very poignant. Uh, I don't know the rest of the speech, how the quality of the prose is. I'm sure it's pretty good, but not quite like this. There's a reason why they put this on the arch. Um, during the Revolutionary War, blacks served on both sides. They served on both the Patriot cause and also on the Loyalist cause. And the American Revolution, in, in terms of its cultural relevance and, and who supported who, among the colonials, the colonial peoples, uh, 13 states, about a third were patriots, about a third were in the middle, and about a third were loyalists. And we don't remember, and we don't know, especially uh, Americans should know this. I'm not saying somebody from a different country should know this. Uh, but it was hardly a unanimous uh, agreement to secede from, uh, or not secede, that wouldn't be the right word, to rebel against uh, British, the crown, in uh, parliament. And no taxation without representation type of idea. So that was the moral cause of the revolution. Now, it's not as quite as clean as we like to make it out. And again, slavery, uh, you know, was the direct contradiction to the words of the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, every man is created by his creator with endowed with certain rights, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and all that kind of stuff. So a bit of this is propaganda. We have to realize that. But there were blacks on both sides of, of, uh, of the... Um, of the Revolutionary War, the blacks who fought for the British were promised their freedom, and that would be hard to pass up because you're in servitude. And um, we did the same thing in the, uh, I would use the word weeks, I consider myself a Yankee, even though I lived in West Virginia for a while, which was uh, divided from Virginia during the Civil War because it wasn't a slave state. Uh, I would just say that I, I the moral cause of, of the Civil War is pretty clear to me. Uh, but it, it doesn't mean that uh, the Union was completely in the right and the South was completely in the wrong, in the wrong about everything. Um, I'll just leave it at that. But I, I'm, no, uh, I'm no believer in the lost cause, which is just propaganda. But these words themselves are kind of propagandistic. It's pretty rosy. It's a pretty rosy view of the Revolutionary War. And, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up around the Bicentennial, came of consciousness around 1974, 76, when I started thinking outside of the, my own little world. 
And, you know, I fell in love with the idea of the, uh, the American Revolution and all that entire era. And it was a bit disappointing as I got older to think about the implications of, you know, what servitude meant and how freedom didn't apply to blacks and all that kind of stuff. So the intrinsic dignity of man, this is where I want to get to with Soren today. When you think about war, what war is trying to accomplish, it has an aim to beat the enemy for some purpose. Uh, it's usually for, uh, for property. Uh, it's not ra rarely done to preserve life. I think that's a ridiculous thesis that war is going to preserve life somehow. It might in some cases. I, I don't know, but it would seem like the costs are pretty high. I think it's usually done for territorial gain or presumed territorial gain. And the parties engaged in war never think it's going to be as tragic as it is. This is true about the Civil War. It's true about the Ukrainian war right now. The Russians had no idea that the Ukrainians were going to fight it out, that they weren't just going to lay over. And uh, so the Russians fooled themselves by their own propaganda that they thought that 90% of the Ukrainians wanted to be Russians again. Sorry, ain't working. There's a reason why they separated. It has a lot to do with how the uh, Soviet Union treated the Ukraine during uh, World War II and starved them out. That's not forgotten. So we've talked about that before. But, you know, war is taking the best of a generation of young men and putting them on the altar of sacrifice. And there's like an inherent lack of dignity uh, acknowledged by doing that. Like you're sacrificing thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of young men that are never going to reach their maturity, never get married, never have kids, never going to have grandkids, not going to live their lives. They're going to die on a battlefield when they're 18 years old, maybe a little bit older. And is it worth the price? You know, especially if you think about these uh, these men and assorted other innocent people that are not soldiers. Soldiers are not necessarily innocent, but the uh, civilians often are. They don't want anything to do with this a lot, a lot of times. It just happens, right? So we're taking like these eternal beings and throwing this on this altar of destruction. And, uh, you know, we got these shootings going on right now and we have abortion where people just think it's just a, just a bundle of nerves and, and cells. You know, if we believe in the eternity of human beings, we have to be very, very careful and trifling, trifling with that. And if we really had a sense of the dignity and the eternality of human beings, we'd certainly be... A heck of a lot more careful about how we treat each other, especially in, in things that lead to the loss of life. I'm not saying war is always immoral. I'm just saying that it comes at a heavy cost, and it's it's sometimes the best of a series of bad options. So Soren gets into this uh, where he talks about uh, how we how we give ourselves to God and how we feel a sense of joy when we do that. And I want to get to page 86. I'm a bit sad that this book is almost over. The Lily of the Field and the Bird of the Air, Three Godly Discourses by Soren Kierkegaard, translated with an introduction by Bruce H. Kermsey. I've tried to reach out to these people to see if they want to join my podcast, and I often get affirmations back, but they don't follow up so far. I can't force people to be guests. Madison was willing and excited to be a, a guest on my podcast, even though she didn't know squat about Soren, I think she was able to articulate an idea that Soren has very well about being silent and letting um, space exist between us and the uh, social media chaos that's out there and just the stimulation. So Soren gets into God cares for you. We talked about that last time. Unconditional joy is precisely over God, over whom and in whom you can always unconditionally rejoice. If you do not become unconditionally joyful in this situation, the fault lies unconditionally in you, in your clumsiness and casting all your sorrows upon him, in your unwillingness to do so, 
in your conceitedness, in your stubbornness. In short, it lies in your not being like the lily and the bird. There is only one sorrow with respect to which the lily and the bird cannot be a teacher, a sorrow of which we therefore will not speak here, the sorrow of sin. Soren doesn't get into this, but it, man, those that those words hammer home. Anybody that thinks that Soren is, is light on sin is not reading his his work. They have a grandiose view of what he's saying. Sin is a unique a unique characteristic of human beings. It's it's the it's the image of God that's fallen. Uh, it's it's a bad thing because uh, the uh, greatness of the fall is somewhat related to the greatness of our status before God as as created beings that have an eternal nature. The only creatures that do. So Soren says, admit your shame that it is indeed, uh, the. Uh, let me try this again, and admit to your shame that indeed it is actually the unconditional silence and the unconditional obedience in which the bird and the lily are unconditionally joyful over God. So the way they express joy to God is in prayer, it's communication. So Soren gets into the Lord's Prayer, he says the Lord's Prayer, he just says the prayer but assumes the Lord's Prayer, which is an example of all true prayer prayer, which of course prays itself joyful and more joyful, unconditionally joyful, and the end has nothing and nothing more to pray for or to desire, but unconditionally joyful, ends in praise and worship. The prayer yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Now interestingly, that doxology doesn't exist in Jesus' model prayer. That's been added by Protestants. Catholics don't say that. And I always wondered when I was in a, a Protestant church where uh, the yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory came from because I was raised Catholic and I didn't remember that. It's obviously the doxology is beautiful, but that was added by the um, non-Catholics uh, to the Lord's Prayer. So the Catholics like to mention that when we we bust on them for tradition. So that's not in the scriptures. You guys added that. That's tradition. And this and his is the power, and therefore you must unconditionally obey and be unconditionally obedient and submitting to everything, for his is the power and his is the glory. And therefore, in everything you do and everything you suffer, you have unconditionally one more thing to do, to give him glory, for the glory is his. Oh, unconditional joy, his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, forever. Behold, this day, the day of eternity, it indeed never comes to an end. Therefore, only hold on unconditionally fast to this, that his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Then there is uh, you uh, today that is never that never ends, a today in which you can eternally remain present to yourself. Then let he the heavens fall and the stars change their places in the overturning of everything. Let the bird die and the lily wither. This very day your joy and worship and in your joy you will nevertheless survive every destruction. Consider what concerns you, if not as a human being, then as a Christian, that it, from a Christian standpoint, even the danger of death is so insignificant to you that it is said, this very day you're, you are in paradise. And that's what Jesus told the repentant thief on the cross. It's a very interesting uh, visual, if you think about it, uh, portrayed in the uh, crucifixion of Jesus. Is one thief is on one side and one thief is on the other. And one is railing on Jesus, saying, hey, take us off this cross, son of God. And the other one's like, shut the hell up. Um, we deserve what we're getting. He doesn't. And he asked that Jesus forgive him. So they're having a conversation while they're being crucified. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> I can't believe it, but there you go. And Jesus promises that he, the repentant thief, will be with him in paradise on that day. 
But that's humanity right there. You have, we're all going to die. We're all going to be crucified in a way. The flesh is going to die just slowly. The crucifixion takes much more time, metaphorically speaking. And you're either going to be a repentant thief or you're going to be the thief that's railing on God. And those are your choices. So figure out what you want to do. And there's eternal consequences to that. I would encourage you, if you have the time, to look up The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis on, uh, on the internet. It's an essay that he wrote about the weight of glory, which talks about the eternal nature of mankind and how serious we need to be and how intentional we need to be in treating other people and not to be violent and not to be destructive and uh, the eternal consequences of doing that. It's not to be taken lightly, that's for sure. So Soren says, you abide in God, for if you abide in God, then whether you live or die, whether things go badly for you while you're alive, well or badly for you while you are alive, whether you die today or only after 70 years, and whether you find your death at the bottom of the sea at its greatest depth or you are exploded in the air, you still do not come from uh, to come to be outside of God. You abide, thus you remain present in yourself, in God, and therefore on the day of your death, you are in paradise this very day. Um, the, he calls it the longest day is granted, eternity, eternal, eternal safety and peace with God. This is something that you are assured of every time that you say this prayer and something to which you also draw near every time you fervently pray this prayer of joy. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Just uh, do a quick aside. We're at 2133. If you believe humanity's only materialism, I will tell you as a thinker that there's no intrinsic worth in human beings. No more worth than us versus a rock or a plant or a tree. Just take my word for it. Uh, uh, people that are materialists don't like to admit that. But value collapses if this is all there is. If it's only a material matter, then you can't have a sense of uh, morality because there's no eternality to our souls. We're just a, a series of cells. So yeah, abort your babies. Why not shoot people? You know, there's no there's no reason why you should be any more concerned about that than taking out a big hornet's nest. Uh, it's just a fellow creature, just materialism, right? Just organized a bit differently, a different organism. So don't buy the lie of, of the intrinsic moral nature of evolution. I'm not saying that there's not like uh, what's called microevolution, but I believe there was a created act that creatures were made by God. They did not evolve from paramecium and become human beings. It's impossible. The statistical likelihood of that taking the size of the universe is so statistically impossible that it befuddles the mind. But men suppress the truth because they want to live autonomously of God. And the fact is they're slaves to sin. That's just the Christian gospel. The only thing that gives dignity to humanity is being made in the image of God. That's the only thing that does it. And you can get into reincarnation, and that doesn't do it, because what people get in this life is kind of what they deserve. They did something wrong in their past life, so now they are getting their just desserts, and who am I to F with karma, right? So I will tell you, as a thinker who has a PhD and spends many, many hours thinking about this stuff, is you only have dignity in God. If you try to establish your dignity through social construct, or civilization, or social norms, it is sand through the hand, it is ashes, and you will never have human dignity without a clear understanding of who humanity is and who God is through the Trinity, through the Bible, and His is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen.